It's been a trickle, really. In recent years, we've seen every year a trickle of people come to faith in Christ, and for that, we're very, very grateful. But we asked ourselves the question, are we satisfied with just a trickle? The answer very quickly was no, we're not satisfied with just a trickle of people coming to Christ. Second question we asked ourselves was, do we think God is satisfied with just a trickle of people coming to Christ here at ACC? Again, we quickly determined the answer was no, we don't think God is satisfied with that. We don't think that's all he's want, wanting to do, but that we desire, we have a vision to see a surge of men and women of older folks and young people coming to faith in Christ on a regular basis where we would be the type of church and we would be the type of environment where we value and love people who are far from God and that each of us would be actively engaged in outreach in building redemptive relationships and looking for opportunities to tell our story and actively praying for the lost that God has put in each of our lives. That's the kind of church we want to be. So we've taken basically the entire fall since mid-September through now almost the end of November on this vision casting series, Surge. Today's the last day. By the way, I want to tell you, next Sunday, you're doing the preaching, all right? We're having open mic, and it's a Thanksgiving time for you to come up and share what you're thankful for, what God has done in your life. I won't be preaching, you will be preaching, all right? The only difference is I normally get 30 minutes, you get 60 seconds at the most, okay? But we're hoping that there'll be many of you that will participate, so be thinking about that. What you'd like to come and share with your church family of what you're thankful for, that there'll be open mics for that next Sunday, and that's always a favorite service of our church, so... Uh, be looking forward to that, okay? <clears throat> we live in a society, as you well know, that has changed tremendously just in the last five to ten years, let alone the last few decades. And we find ourselves living it now in what's commonly labeled a post-Christian society, whereas things that were just givens, even 20, 30 years ago, now are in tremendous dispute. And basic worldviews that we shared in common with almost everybody else, now that's not the case at all. And so it's a different world for the church. It's a different world for ministry and communicating the gospel. But we face the reality that we live in a postmodern, post-Christian society that calls for us to live lives that are strategic, that are intentional in seeking to share Christ with others. There's been some studies done, a few books written, that I found pretty fascinating. But because what this study has done, it's chronicled in our society, how does a person come to Christ? Or what is the dynamic of their spiritual journey look like for them to go from being far from God to becoming part of God's family? And I wanted to share with you um, the, the guidelines or the thresholds that a person must break through in order to come to faith in Christ as it is in our world now. And I want you to make this personal. So as we think about this spiritual journey that people make in coming towards God, I want you to attach a name to it. It's somebody that you're already praying for. That family member, that coworker, that neighbor, that classmate, that's heavy on your heart. 
they're far from God and you've been praying for them. Think of them, attach their name to this and how this would apply to them as we walk through these five thresholds on the pathway to crossing the line of faith, okay? There's been five thresholds identified. I think it's fascinating stuff and to me it makes sense. Check it out, all right? The first threshold is this. In order for a person to advance in their spiritual journey who's far from God, they need to trust a Christian. They need to meet a Christian, they need to develop a friendship with a Christian, and they need to learn to trust a Christian. The credibility of the message and the messenger is established through that development of trust in a relationship. In our world, to be a part of a church isn't necessarily considered a good thing. And to say that you're a Christian isn't necessarily a good thing. There's been a lot of hypocrisy. There's been a lot of judgmentalism. And some of the criticism of the church and of Christians is deserved. We brought it on ourselves. But it's also true that a lot of it is just not true. But it's slander, it's misrepresenting the name of Christ. And so, you know, it's a mixture of those things. But people who are far from God typically view the church and view the gospel with a lot of suspicions. And a lot of presuppositions about, oh, Christians are like this, or the Christians are like that. And it's not until they actually meet a real Christian and have a friendship and develop a certain level of trust that they're able to advance in their spiritual journey. Let me give you an action step where you can help the person you love as they bust through this threshold. The action step is simply practice bless. Practice bless. What we've been talking about for the prior three weeks leading up to this Sunday. Begin with prayer. Listen with care. Eat together. Serve with love and share your story. Just be a friend. Relentlessly, consistently, tenaciously be that Christian that they can trust. The second threshold is they need to begin wondering about Jesus. Most people have heard of Jesus, but they've never really thought about him. What he taught is what he taught true. How did he treat others? All those kind of things. And and what, if anything, does Jesus have to do with me? Or is he just an ancient historical figure? A person needs to start wondering about Jesus. Here's your action step. You can build curiosity Build curiosity in your friend by listening to their story, telling your story, and making connections between your story, their story, and God's story. And so as you develop that trust relationship, you can say to them, hey, what do you believe about God? What do you think about forgiveness? What do you think about life after death? You know, you hear their story and then you'll have the opportunity to share the difference God has made in your life and how you came to know God. You can tell them about your spiritual journey and then you can connect it with God's story of sending a savior and the substitutionary death and the resurrection of Christ and all that that means to you. But you can help build their curiosity by engaging them in this way. But they need to begin considering Jesus, pondering him. Third threshold is this. That person to come to God has to be open to change. There has to be an opening up to change. I think this might be the most difficult threshold for people to break through because for most of us, change is hard. 
And for a lot of people, regardless of how open-minded they say they are, they fear change. And so a person to come to Christ, you know what I think is one of the hardest things for a person to come to Christ, the change that they have to deal with? They have to admit they've been wrong up till now in their life. That their worldview, their presuppositions about God and heaven and hell, that they've been wrong. If, if they weren't wrong, they would have done something previous, right? And so they've got to admit that, but also that realization that their beloved family and friends are wrong as well. And man, that's a huge shift in your worldview. That's a huge shift in your thinking. And some people, most people understand, hey, if I come to Christ, there's going to be moral implications for that in my life. The way I live my life is going to need the change in order to fall in line with God's will, you know, and please him. And so all this change is overwhelming the people. And that's why we have to be patient because it can take a long time for a person to open up to the point where they're ready to let God change their life. Let me give you some action steps as a friend. First of all, don't be afraid to challenge them at least gently to begin with. If you're a friend of theirs, if they trust you, if they know you have their best interests in mind, you can say to them, hey, you said you're open to change. You said you're an open-minded person. Give this a try. You need to see that change is good. It's only through change that a person grows, right? And so try this. Try this, challenge them. And then secondly, come alongside and help them. Whatever specific thing is holding them back regarding change, talk them through it. Let them articulate their fears with the change, but come alongside them and help them and listen and pray for them in any way that you can. Here's the fourth threshold. After they've dealt with those three things, then they get to the point where they need to start seeking after God, where they're a full-fledged seeker. And at that point, they're in high gear and they're asking lots of questions. They're showing a lot of interest. And that's where, here's what we do, your action step. You need to live out the kingdom in front of them. You need to invite them to church. You need to invite them to become a part of your Bible study or small group. You need to show them how to read your Bible, their Bible, give them a Bible, uh, uh, pray with them. Invite them to come on service projects with you, but do things with them within the church community and in your own spiritual life so they can see firsthand what it's like to live for God and to grow in him. And then the fifth threshold is entering the kingdom where they make that decision to give their life to Christ. We sometimes call this crossing the line of faith, becoming a Christian, It's the moment of conversion, but that place in a person's life where they give their life to Christ and invite him in, believing in his substitutionary death and his bodily resurrection and receiving that by faith as a gift. Here's the action steps we can take on that final threshold. Appropriately urge them, but be clear and don't oversimplify. Don't give them the impression that if they become a Christian, all their problems would go away, because that's a lie. We all know it. Secondly, pray with them and for them at this point. Don't be afraid to pray with them and for them in crossing the line of faith. And then finally, give them appropriate next steps. Now that they've entered God's family, they need to start growing spiritually. Give them the gift of a Bible. Pick them up and give them a ride to church. Help them now begin to grow in their faith and get involved in a faith community. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
the focus he had, the intentionality he had in his life to reach people who are far from God. And look what he says here, beginning at verse 22. He says, yes, I tried to find common ground with everyone. I love that. Is that your intent with your neighbors and coworkers? Do you work hard to try to find common ground with everyone? Doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Talk about focus. He says twice, he repeats himself twice. He says, I do everything. I do everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news. That's a person who's living life intentionally because of what's at stake and how important it is. And then he goes on to describe this commitment to reaching those who are far from God. He says, don't you realize that in a race, every, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win, run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. And so I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing, running to win. I wanted to address a fear that some of you might have as we cast this vision for our church. And from time to time, I hear people who are brave enough to articulate it to me. And here's the fear. They're like, Dave, what about us? What about us who already know Jesus? We feel like we're being pushed off to the side. We feel like we don't matter anymore. Oh, our church is gonna change and it's scary. And, and what about us? Real briefly, let me respond to that, okay? Christians who are on mission, Christians who are on mission have a far greater joy and a sense of the reality of Christ in their life when they are actively involved in outreach. Your faith is never more real when you're actively engaged in reaching and serving others, I'm telling you. And of course, we'll be a church that is building Christians up and providing an environment where they can grow and be taught and where they can worship. Of course, we'll always be that. But we can't lose sight of the fact that God saves us in order to send us. And that we gather every Sunday for the purpose of then scattering back into our workplaces, schools, and neighborhoods. And in a church, it's the natural tendency of a church to become inward, to become inward, to where visitors aren't welcome, no one's inviting anyone, faith isn't being shared, and that inwardness is just the natural tendency. And so if a church is to have any kind of balance in helping Christians but reaching the lost, you've got to overemphasize evangelism. You've got to overemphasize sharing your faith just to have anywhere close to a balance. And so don't let this vision scare you. Instead, I want to encourage you to embrace it and understand that our church will never be more exciting and dynamic. Our church will never be more pleasing to God. And your Christian faith will never be more real than we are, when we are committed to reaching the lost. Folks, I'm convinced of that. So embrace this vision and allow God to use you to bless. Jesus was a uh, fantastic teacher.
And one of the things that made him so effective was he loved to tell stories and people connect with stories. And Jesus would tell stories uh, that we call parables. And a parable was just a short story that had everyday situations, you know, kind of being talked out that anyone could understand and relate to. And then there was a deeper spiritual truth underneath the superficial telling of the story. They were called parables. I think probably the most horrifying story, the most shocking story that Jesus ever told was found in Matthew chapter 13. It's often called the terrible parable. And as we read it, you're going to understand in just a few minutes why it's been labeled the terrible parable. And so Matthew 13, beginning at verse 47, here's the picture that Jesus paints. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. A few summers ago, my wife Karen and I were privileged to visit our missionaries, Tim and Beth Wood, in Mozambique. And while we were there, one day they took us to like a beach resort area uh, on the Indian Ocean. And as we were walking along the ocean, we came upon a group of fishermen. There was probably 16, 20 guys. And they were fishing in this exact way that Christ was describing. 2,000 years later, and people still make their living doing the exact same thing, the exact same way. And this type of fishing with a net, uh, it's commonly called a drag net. And what, what these men did there on the shores of the Indian Ocean was they had this real long net and one end of it was anchored to the shore. And like if this was the shore and you were the water, if this was the shore, what they would do is a boat would take the other end of the net and take it straight out from the shore, perpendicular to the shore till it was, till it was stretched real taut right? And there'd be like corks, or uh, I think they actually had like, um, like uh, 16 ounce bottles of Coke and two liters that were emptied and then the lid screwed back on so they were buoyant. They were all tied along the top of the net and then they had weights or rocks at the bottom of the net. And so once the net was extended, and some of these drag nets can be up to a half a mile long. And so they would stretch it out taut and it's this big net And then the boat would start to make an arc and keeping the net real taut, it would slowly start making its way towards shore. And as it got in the shallows, there was probably eight to 10 guys waiting there. And then they would all grab on both ends of the net and drag it up onto the shore. And friends, when they did this, they had a pile of fish about as big as this stage and about this high. I was blown away at how many fish they could grab just by doing that. And we watched them. And all the men then came in and they began to sort the fish. And all the undesirable fish, the fish that weren't good eating or for whatever reason, they were literally tossing them over their back and just tossing them off to the side. And they had crates next to their feet. And all the other good fish they were putting into the crates because they immediately got on their motorbikes and took them into town to sell them fresh in the market. And we watched this unfold, and it was just the coolest thing to watch. Well, you see, 
Jesus' listeners here in Matthew 13 would be totally familiar with that. They lived on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Most of them probably had a dad or an uncle or a grandpa who was a professional fisherman. So this was something, a, a picture they could all c- connect to, right? That's the picture. Now here's the principle. Here's, here's the spiritual truth that Jesus is playing out. Verse 49. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous. Now we understand that all of humanity is separated from God, that it is within our nature, every one of us, to live a life of rebellion to God and live a life of independence to God. And so by wicked people, we don't mean like mass murderers or perverts or something like that. We mean everybody is wicked, right? And the only people who are righteous are those who have received the gift of God through Jesus Christ. The only ones who are righteous are those who've received the gift of forgiveness through Christ. That's the wicked and the righteous. Those who've embraced Christ and those who've rejected Christ for whatever reason, right? And so it says, this is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous. And so very simply, here's the principle. Here's the spiritual truth. God will one day separate the wicked from the righteous. It's one of the most prevalent teachings of Christ in the New Testament. In numerous stories, he taught the day is going to come where people are going to be separated. One's going to go this way, one's going to go that way. Two men walking up a hill, one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. Two women grinding at a mill, one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. The wheat and the tares growing up in the same field, how can you separate the wheat from the weeds? Don't worry about it. At the harvest, at the final day, God's angels will separate them. He talked about stories like that all the time. And so every day that we exist, that that doesn't begin to happen, it's a day of grace. It's a day of God's patience. It's a day of Christ delaying his return to give men and women the opportunity to turn to him. But eventually that day will come. And you know, you think about those fish that are caught in that giant dragnet. As that net is closing in on them, they have no idea what's happening. They have no idea that it's about to end until they start seeing and feeling the net and they try swimming away from it and there's more and more fish and they're all crowded and they can't get away and all of a sudden they find themselves being lifted up out of the water and thrown onto the sand before they had a chance to do anything. Everything's changed. And my friends, what Jesus is saying is that net of God's judgment is closing in on the human race. And it appears like everything's normal, but every day that net is closer to being dragged in out of the water. And at that point, people will be separated and it'll have eternal consequences. And so look in verse 50 as he goes on, just how horrible this is. He says, he says, um, They'll separate the wicked from the righteous. And then verse 50, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the hardest teachings of scripture to understand and to accept and to embrace is the reality of hell.
I have so many questions. <laughs> but what I know is this. God's word clearly teaches it. And Jesus believed in it. You know, Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he ever did heaven. And in fact, Jesus wasn't afraid to use hell as a motivation for people getting right with God. Because he saw the reality of it. And my friends, as hard as a teaching as it is for us to fully wrap our brains around, it doesn't make sense to believe in heaven and not believe in hell. It's kind of a package deal. And to put yourself in a situation where you say, well, I, I, I just don't believe hell is real, you're standing in opposition to Christ who made it clear he did believe in it. And is that really a position you want to put yourself in? And so that's the ultimate horror. Not just that one day the wicked will be separated from the righteous, but that for the wicked there will be a place of eternal judgment. And so Jesus turns to his disciples. He tells this terrible parable. He tells this horrifying story. And then he turns to them in verse 51 and says, do you understand all these things? He says, do you understand the implications of what I just taught? Do you understand the gravity of the truth I just told you? His disciples said, Jesus, we're with you. We get it. We understand. Yes, we do. And so here's how Jesus wraps it up. He says, then listen. If you really understand what I just taught, then listen. Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. What does that mean? Verse 52 is a little bit cryptic. Here's what it means. A head of a household, a head of a household is responsible for those within their home to provide for them, right? You get a job, you make money, and you provide the resources to provide food, clothing, and shelter for those who you are responsible for. That's what a responsible homeowner does, right? Or not homeowner, head of a household. And so, um, and so what would you think of the head of a household whose children were cold and dirty and hungry and exposed to the elements. When that home, the head of the household had the resources to provide, but didn't use it on them. Instead, gambled it away or spent it foolishly. What would you think of the head of the household? Well, you'd think they were a horrible person, right? you think they're highly irresponsible. It would be ridiculous. Well, you see, Jesus is saying, as followers of Christ, your resource is the gospel. You possess what others don't. You have forgiveness, eternal life, the message of Christ. You are the head of the household. That's your resource. And you're responsible for, for allocating those resources, for getting those resources out there like the head of a household would. And to keep it for yourself, to not care about others, would be the most horrifying, irresponsible, cold-blooded thing you could possibly do. And so when he says, um, it's like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old, new gems of truth as well as old, that could mean a couple of things. One, it might be referring to the fact that the Old Testament has truths pointing people to Christ. The New Testament has truths pointing to Christ. And so the responsible homeowner 
teach us from the Bible that throughout scripture, it points people to Jesus. The other thing it could possibly mean is that the message is always the same. The gospel of Christ has remained the same for 2000 years, but each generation is responsible to present it in a culturally fresh and relevant way. The message doesn't change, but how you present it is in a culturally fresh and relevant way. That's responsibility of the believers. That's the responsibility of the church. And so the challenge is simply, what are you going to do about it? As a follower of Christ, you're like the head of a household. You have something that other people desperately need. What is your response going to be? I want to encourage you to embrace the vision we've been casting. I want to encourage you to live life on point, live it on mission and seek to bless those in your neighborhood and in your workplace and in your family. To take serious the responsibility God has given you because of the reality of future judgment and the reality of hell and the salvation that's been found in Christ that needs to be delivered to those who need it. I'm going to take a step back And I've been challenging those of you who know Christ to do something about it and take your responsibility serious as the words of Christ just taught. I want to take a step back and I want to talk to those of you who haven't yet given your lives to Christ. You've been wondering about him. You've been thinking about it. But you've never crossed the line of faith. You've never given your life to Christ. You're not the head of a household yet. You're not responsible to give anything out because you haven't got anything yourself yet. And you need to receive and embrace that salvation that's found in Christ. Biggest mistake you can make is thinking you can earn your way to God. So many people have this idea, well, yeah, I need to come to God, but I'll get my act together first. You know, I I need to stop doing some bad habits in my life and I need to start going to church and I got to start putting money in the offering plate. I need to get a Bible and then figure out how to read it. And, you know, and then maybe God will like me. Maybe God will accept me. Not the way it works. You can't work your way to God. You can't earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift. And so I want to challenge those of you who need to embrace Christ for the first time to do that, to believe Jesus is the son of God, that he died on the cross in place of you. That he rose again from the dead to give you new life and so you give your life to God and you receive that gift of salvation by faith. If you've never done that, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna lead in a prayer and I'm gonna invite you to pray with me, all right? If this is the desire of your heart, I wanna challenge you to pray with me to invite Christ to be in your life right now. So let's pray, okay? And if you've never done this before, I challenge you to do it. Pray these words to God silently in your own heart. Father, I admit that I am a sinner. I admit that I need you. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again from the dead. Father, I can't earn my way to you, but I receive your salvation as a gift. Father, forgive me. Come into my life and change me from the inside out and help me to live for you. God, thank you for loving me and saving me. 
In Christ's name, amen.